why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 5. If you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hands if you'd like. We have some ushers that would love to ush a Bible to you. Acts chapter 5. So um, back around, we've been in, in the series um, in the book of Acts. We've been looking at this book for several months now. And what we typically do on Sunday mornings, we just take books of the Bible and we look at them and let God's word speak to us and verse by verse, chapter by chapter is what we're doing. Um, but over the past three weeks, we've been looking at a, at a passage out of Acts chapter 4 that basically summarizes a very large portion of scripture. And what we've been looking at is sort of summary concepts that arise out of that passage. And this is the passage that we've been looking at. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 33, and it just simply says this, and there was great grace that was upon them all. And the idea is, is that uh, Luke, who is the author of this book and the narrator of this book, he's basically telling us uh, his observations of what he sees pertaining to this group or this community of Jesus people. And he says that God's grace, God's super grace, the actual Greek word that's used here is megakaris, God's super grace is upon this community. So what we've been looking at over the past three weeks is really the question, what does it look like to be a community of people that are basically under this banner of God's super grace? Like, what does that look like to be that community of people that are defined by or labeled as God's uh, grace is upon them? And that's really what we've been unpacking. What we said is basically five things that we've been looking at over the past three weeks. It's kind of week three of this, and we'll be done of this little section, and we'll move on next week into chapter six. But we've looked at basically uh, five things. One, we've seen that this community of people are radically generous, that what we've been saying is that uh, the community of people that are under God's radical grace uh, show radical generosity. In other words, if we would claim to be people that, yes, God's grace is upon me, but you're stingy and you're stubborn and you never share, you never give your time, your energy, your stuff, your goods, your money, whatever, you never share, you're never radically generous, uh, there's a very good possibility that there is something radically incongruent with your profession, what you state, and what you actually truly believe. You may believe that you are radically generous, but if your actions speak to the contrary of that, then there's, there's a good possibility that you don't really fully, truly get the reality of what the gospel is all about. So that's what we see, is that the early church, chapter 4, describes this community of people that are radically generous. Some are giving their money away. Some are opening up their houses. They're not selling their houses. They're keeping their houses. They're keeping their property, but they're using their houses and their property in radically generous ways by allowing people to come to their house from house to house and have Bible studies and have church groups and have potluck dinners and have sleepovers and have moments where people can come and sit down on their couches and be prayed for and be led to Jesus in their own territory. Um, There were others that were basically taking their goods and their assets and they were moving them into actual liquid money where they can then give it away to those that have need. So no matter who they were, whether or not they had large possessions, whether or not they had houses or just money, they were using what they had to give away in radical, generous ways. Because, again, this is a community of people that were under God's radical generosity, God's radical grace. Secondly, we see in chapter 5, and again, I won't go through all these, is we see this sense of holiness, that the church was being reshaped and redefined and becoming like God, like the God they worship. And then thirdly, we see that the broken, the marginalized, were actually welcomed into this community of people and made whole. So the question was, is, you know, where do the broken and the hurting and the messed up and the people that have baggage in their life, where do they go? Well, in the first century, 
uh, the answer to that is they went to this community of Jesus people. That's where they went. And they weren't rejected. They weren't pushed aside. They weren't made fun of. They weren't laughed at. They weren't scoffed. They were welcomed. They were loved. And, and not only that, through that process of being welcomed and through that process of being loved, they were being made whole. That's the big idea. So, again, we can be a church that claims to know God, but if we are a church that is constantly alienating, pushing off, uh, pushing aside people that are not like us, people that don't think just like us, people don't act just like us, then there is an incongruency between our profession and what we actually believe. And the early church, and again, this is the, the idea is that everybody who's broken comes together and stays broken. Everybody comes together and they seek Jesus who makes them whole. Again, some were made instantaneously whole because they had these sicknesses and diseases that they were made whole. Others, probably over time, sometimes emotional wounds and baggage take time to get whole, made whole. But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus was assembling, gathering together the outcast, the marginalized, the broken, the people that everybody else would have rejected, and they were finding wholeness in Jesus in this Jesus community. So, fourthly, we see that these people then, as a result of this, they had favor and influence among the people. So massive amounts of people were basically attracted to the church. I mean, imagine that. We live in a culture today, in a lot of ways, in which the church has sort of had its, its heyday, if you would, if you think of it this way. I mean, I mean, in American history, um, there were moments where the church shined brightly in the establishment of, um, um, of hospitals, of other things that were basically contributing to the good of society at large. And so people flocked to the churches because they were like, oh, that's the place you go, and if you're marginalized or hurting or broken or had a cold or had the flu or needed help, you went there and they treated you and they loved you and they, didn't, they, weren't, they weren't put off by you. But again, there's been moments throughout church history, it's modern history, obviously, which the, the church's favor has ebbed and flowed. There are times, even within modern times, where the church has, rather than being this place that accepts and welcomes and loves people, takes these firm stances and pushes and alienates and promotes the sense of oppression upon other people, rather than relieving oppression. So in the early church days, because they were being swept up by Jesus under God's mega grace, we saw this movement that was basically moving forward. And people were attracted to, to this community of people because, not because there was something extra special about them, but because Jesus was shaping them to be a community of people that looked like him. Again, not so that they could all come together and commiserate over their own brokenness and sense of confusion and wretchedness, but so that in the midst of their confusion and brokenness and various elements of ruin come to find wholeness in Jesus and forgiveness from their sin and healing from their brokenness and God reorienting their hearts towards him. That's what we see. So finally, that's where we get to today, is the subject of providence. So I think the word providence is a fitting word. Some of us, I realize that we might not be familiar with that word providence, so I'll give you a little bit of a definition, and then we'll get into this. Before we jump in and begin to look at the subject of Providence is being one of the, I think, characteristic traits of a church that is basically defined by God's mega grace. Let me pray, and then we'll look at the definition. We'll jump in, and we'll see how this kind of plays out throughout the rest of chapter 5. So, God, we come to you this morning, and we just recognize that there are so many areas in our lives, in our own actions, in our own activities, God, in which there are just simply these incongruencies. There are these disconnects, these areas in our lives where it's just not in sync with this 
picture that we see of your church in the first century. Uh, God, we recognize your church in the first century wasn't perfect. But God, we also recognize that they made a radical impact upon the world. And we want to be a community of people that make a radical impact upon the world. We want to be a community of people that don't just simply gather and do our little thing and are religious and are known for having a building on the end of Hagara Street. God, we want to be a community of people that are defined by, recognized by, known by love and truth and these things coming together and not being incompatible with one another, but through coming to the truth, having our sins washed and cleansed and forgiven and our lives being made renewed like Jesus. God, we want to be that community of people that we are never put off by anybody, no matter how broken, how ruined, how confused they might be, and that we'd be a community of people that are so radically generous that no one could ever look at us and say they, they care more about their stuff than they do about the hurting and the wounded. So God, reshape us. We, we come to you with open hearts just saying we want transparency, we want to be honest, we truly want to wrestle with Scripture and let our hearts be reshaped and reoriented according to your ways. We commit this time in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, providence, what does that mean? Definition, just straight out of the dictionary, it just says this. Uh, God directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. Again, another really big word, benevolence. I think most of you guys probably know what that means, but the idea of like goodwill, good generosity. God has this sense in which he is guiding, directing, and leading the universe, not by way of merciless anger, but out of benevolence, out of kindness, out of goodness. And then second way to think of it is, is a manifestation of divine care or direction. Um, it's a word that oftentimes was used, especially within reform circles or Calvinism and whatnot, if you're ever familiar with that. Probably my favorite flavor of Calvinism is the Puritan movement, uh, which in a lot of ways is embedded within American his- history and whatnot. Um, a lot of my favorite dead guys are, are Puritans, and they, they use this idea, the concept of God's providence, because they had this really high view of God. God somehow is in the midst of a lot of confusion, and God's working in ways that we don't always understand. Um, I heard someone once liken the picture, the idea uh, to that being of like a, a, a tapestry. I mean, I'm not a big, huge tapestry guy, but I kind of know what tapestries are, but um, if you look at a tapestry in the front, you can see these bright, vibrant colors, assuming it's a bright, vibrant color p- tapestry, and it's, it's, it forms a picture, an image, or something like that you can look at, you can be amazed by. But if you take that tapestry and turn it over, um, what you have on the backside are like millions of disconnected, uh, frayed pieces of yarn or, or, or string that aren't connected, they're disconnected, all sorts of crazy random colors. You can't make any sense, any shape, any formation out of this bunch of randomness because you're looking at this tapestry from behind. So, but, and most of us, when we look at our lives, we're simply looking at this tapestry from behind. We're trying to make sense of a bunch of frayed, disconnected, or seemingly disconnected uh, strings, and yet, really, uh, people who have a strong sense of providence, which their first century did, they, to some degree, even they were not always able to look at the front of this picture, it's as if once in a while they would have these snapshots where they would just recognize that even though we don't know what the front side is going to look like, we know that somehow, even though this massive uh, canvas of disconnected, frayed image, you know, strings, somehow God, on the other side of this, is weaving together something that's just full of radiant beauty. That somehow, this is what God's up to. Somehow God is behind 
all of this making something absolutely breathtaking and beautiful. We, we just can't see it yet, but we know that God somehow is doing this because we're tapped in to a bigger story, which this is what God has done. Does that make sense? So this is the question that we really want to ask. There's basically three of them, which we'll try to unpack. And the first question is, is how was God's providence displayed in uh, this section of scripture we'll look at? We'll kind of look at three different ways. Second thing we'll ask is, how did the early church think about God's providence? In other words, how did they process or make sense of the idea of God's providence? And thirdly, how did they act in light of God's providence? Like, what did they do? How did their life actually begin to take some form of reflection of living in light of this God that is benevolently ruling and exerting his, his power over all things? How does God do that? And I realize for some of us, um, this may raise a lot of questions. Um, questions like, well, if God is so good, then why is there such evil and suffering in this world? And that's pretty abstract. But for some of you, um, evil and suffering has come up really close. Um, and, I, and I realize for some of you, that that's when you are most uh, prone to question the existence of God or even question uh, the goodness of God. Um, and in and, and upfront and close, dealing with this sense of how do I make sense out of great suffering, great tragedy, great difficulty, and the sense that God is somehow supposedly benevolent and near and good doesn't make any sense to me. Because I would suggest most of us are trying to make sense of the backside of a tapestry. We're having a hard time connecting the colors or the dots, as you would imagine. So with that being said, let's jump in and take a look at the ways in which God's providence was displayed throughout this chapter. Um, First of all, take a look at chapter 15, verses 15 through 16, or chapter 5, I should say, uh, verses 15 through 16. I'll read a couple of these. Now, we've actually looked at this passage uh, in uh, a couple weeks ago, but I'll reread it just to make some sense of what's happening here. It says in verse 15, it says, So they even carried out the sick into the streets, and they laid them in cots and mats. And as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also, as they gathered together from towns around Jerusalem, they brought their sick and the afflicted and the unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So what we see here is this really uh, unusual form of miracles being performed for an unusual amount of people. Like, like God was doing something. Like, and, and I would simply look at that and say, God was providentially moving through these really abstract circumstances. Now, there's a couple of things to just think about and unpack here. I mean, one, Peter and John and the other apostles and other leaders of the other church, they were present. They were aware. They felt in other words, we would say they had compassion for the other people. The word compassion is a great word. It comes from two words, compassion. You know, the idea of passion meaning suffering. With, com, is the idea of with suffering. That's what compassion is. It's being able to feel someone else's suffering. Part of the problem for us as human beings is when we cannot feel someone else's suffering, there's a disconnect. And that oftentimes leads to a form of uh, dehumanization where we can look at someone else's suffering and not feel anything about that. And then that leads us to either feel non-compassion towards them or sometimes just outright frustration. Like, how dare they? What's wrong with them? Why is the problem always about them? And and there's a sense of hardness and coldness in our hearts. But the early church somehow learned how to be present in the midst of all sorts of great suffering and even though the needs radically, I would imagine, outnumbered those that were able to fulfill the needs, somehow God was moving and working in just profound ways to help them. So let me give you an example. 
Um, I've, I've been pastoring here for almost 23 years. My wife and I planted this church when we were both like 22, 23 years old. So we'd been married a big whopping two years. We had all sorts of wisdom and knowledge we were ready to share with people, um, being like these lengthy married couple. Um, and so, we, you know, we've been pastoring a church, but one of the greatest challenges of pastoring a church um, is the constant, ongoing um, disconnect between the massive amount of needs that people bring and the ability to meet those needs. Um, in other words, there are times when the needs that people in the church bring are so heavy, so profound, so just, I don't know how to describe it other than like life draining from someone like myself who, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trained as a therapist and I'm not trained in this area, but I, my wife and I moved up here feeling a call from God to plant a church. We didn't know exactly what that meant or what that looked like. And there are times when, you know, I'm just, I'm up front with people. I'm like, I don't, I don't have all the answers to help you. Um, but sometimes people don't always just simply need answers. They just need someone who can come alongside and suffer along with them, compassion. And there's times, like, it's, it gets overwhelming. And it has been overwhelming at times in the past. I mean, I, I can remember, uh, I don't know, about two years ago or so, something like that. I remember something had happened uh, with a gal in the church, and she shared with me, it was actually on a Sunday morning, how just either it was that night or the week before, she was raped. And I remember going home, and she was, you know, now she's struggling with her faith. How, if God loved me, if God cared for me, why, why would he allow me to be horribly raped last week? And I remember just going home, and I sat down with my wife, and we just, we, I wept. She wept with me. I'm just like, I, I can't, I don't know how to help this girl. I mean, obviously, something so earth-shaping for her happened to her, and I don't, I don't know how to help her. I don't know how to give her words. I don't know how to comfort her. I don't know how to speak words of life to reorient her to, 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 to God. I mean, I mean, I prayed for her, I, but I just, I wept. I didn't know what else to do. And so the point that I'd make is that there are occasions where the early church was confronted with this massive amount of need. So imagine the story here. People are coming, they're sick, and they're broken, and hurting, and wounded. And yet through all of this, God is using this small, disproportionately small amount of people to make this massive impact upon other people's lives. How is providence? Like God was doing something. But it, God oftentimes uses human agents to do that. So what that means is that in a community of Jesus' people, the way that the church thrives and flourishes, in other words, the way this community can become a community that's life-giving, life-generating, is if the whole community, the whole community recognizes their part, their role to play within the redemptive work of God, which means, what that means in, 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 in simple terms is that every single one of us here has a part that we can play in the healing of other people's lives. So here's the problem. Oftentimes when we look at our lives, we're like, I can't do that. I'm jacked up myself. I can't do that. I got baggage myself. I can't do that because I'm really, really busy. I got a lot of stuff on my plate. I can't do that because I don't have any money. I can't do that because I don't have a ride. I can't do that. And we oftentimes think about all sorts of reasons why we can't be used by God to be a vehicle. And... Here's what I would suggest. An alternative approach would be able to say, I don't always have the answers, but wherever I'm at, it doesn't matter if it's at church, if it's at Starbucks, if it's at a coffee shop, if it's downtown, or if it's at Traders, I, I want to be present. I'm going to train my mind to be present and aware and open to whatever's going on around me so that if somehow 
this broken human being rubs shoulders with another broken human being, this human being that's been shown grace and favor and kindness and love by God somehow can be this channel, this vehicle through which God can then extend some form of maybe hope to somebody else. In, in, its, in, in my most limited, fragile, broken, um, abbreviated ways, I, I just I want to have an awareness. The problem is oftentimes we're not aware, right? We're not aware. So you may be at... Trader Joe's, but you're, you're walking around on your phone. You're like, you're, you're looking at your Instagram and trying to figure out like how many likes do you have on your photo now? Because, because these, these things are so radically important to our lives that we literally lose connection and relationship with other people around us. And what it means, what it translates to is we're simply not present. Simply not present. We're not aware, not in tune with the fact that there are hurting and broken people. Like we can show up at church here on a Sunday morning and realize that we tend to think like everybody's all great, they're all here because they're at church and they all look good and they, you know, hair's combed really nicely and they're wearing their best Sunday clothes, whatever the case is. But we tend to forget the fact that there may be people here that are simply broken and ruined and they don't know what to do with their lives. Everything's just full of disorientation and yet somehow you're, you're here and yet being present, being in this moment, being in this time, being in this place, being aware of what's happening around us, of maybe the person that's sitting by themselves or the person that doesn't have any friends or the person that might be alone or the person, whatever the case is, maybe even the person that has a big smile on their face, being aware of these things and recognizing, well, maybe, maybe they're, they're just like me. Maybe they're broken. Maybe they need prayer. Maybe they need someone to just come and remember their name or to ask them how are they doing. And if by doing that, somehow that might bring healing. And yet, these are ways by which God's providence brings healing and wholeness to broken people. So we see the early church just being present. So as they're walking up to the Temple Mount, they're, they're, you know, they're just being present to what God is doing. And while that's happening, they're able to recognize that there's a guy who's paralyzed or been sick or wounded or whatever, and he needs prayer or whatever. And then we're going we're gonna to do what we can to come alongside and, and help that person. And so, as a result of that, God's providence was being shown through Peter's Miracles. The second thing we see is the apostles escape from prison in verses 17 to 26. I'm actually not going to read the whole thing, but we see that uh, the apostles were basically arrested, thrown in prison, and later on within that story, we're told that a messenger of God comes to them, opens the door in the middle of the night, and basically sends a message to them and says, I want you to go into the uh, Temple Mount in the morning and continue preaching all the words of this life. Um, it's, it's kind of a cool little way he describes uh, what they're to communicate. Um, Christianity at the beginning didn't actually have a name. Like, like you wouldn't be able to walk around and be like, hey, where are the Christians meeting? Like, no one would have no clue what you're talking about because there was no name given to them. Um, and this is actually the first and closest thing that we see to a title or a description of who these people are and what they stand for. And it simply describes that go preach, go share the words of this life. Um, in other words, this community was defined as those who have words, um, communication tools of life, this life, this life that comes from God. So they were to go into the Temple Mount and share all the words of this life, which in the morning, or when they were let out in prison, in the morning they end up going to the Temple Mount and then sharing, telling others about Jesus. And then the religious leaders convene in the morning because, again, they've been arrested, and now the religious leaders gather, like, hey, they send for the prisoners, and, like, bring those guys out here, we want to... We want to interrogate them and figure out what's going on and why are they still doing the things that we've asked them not to do. They come out or they, you know, they go out to look for them and they can't find them and they're gone. 
they'd come back and they report, and they're like, all these people that were thrown in prison, they're not here. We don't know where they're at. Someone comes in, they're like, oh, they're down at the Temple Mount preaching, telling others about this Jesus again. So this is what happened. So the point that I would make with this is that they, we see that God is moving in a really profound way. This is what I would describe as God's providence. God providentially opened the, the doors of this prison door. Like God was moving behind the scenes in ways that no one else really could. Again, there's occasions to what we see in which the way God moves is through human agents. God works, God moves through human people that are in touch with what God's doing. And in other cases, God just simply moves. In other cases, God doesn't necessarily need us or uh, isn't dependent upon us to do something. He can just somehow override human agency and do what he wants. And that's what we see in this circumstance. God overrides human agency and sets these people free. The third thing that we see is that the high priest then gives a speech. And this is really kind of a profound speech. It begins in verse 33 on down to the end of the chapter. And we're introduced to another character in a story, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel, we're told, is highly regarded, highly respected. He's a religious leader. In fact, he's such a highly regarded religious leader that we're told of another guy by the name of Paul the Apostle, or Saul of Tarsus, uh, who was actually trained and discipled by Gamaliel um, prior to him coming to, to meet Jesus. So Paul the Apostle is actually officially trained under the leadership of this rabbi called Gamaliel. But Gamaliel gathers together with this large group of religious leaders called Sanhedrin, and he basically gives this bit of insight. He says, look, we've watched other movements arise. And some of these other movements arise, and they gather a strong following of people, and they surge, and they grow, and they promote others. And yet, at some point, when that leader dies, the movement dies. So what Gamaliel's advice is basically this. He says, look, if, if, this, is, if this movement is not of God, then um, we're just going to see this thing slowly die off and slowly slowly fade away. If this movement is of God, we want to be really careful not to stand against what God's doing. Now, the reality is, is that there's some good advice in there, and there's some not so excellent advice, meaning just because something is thriving and flourishing, you can't necessarily look at that and say, well, that, that's God. God's doing that because, look, it's thriving and flourishing. The porn industry is a great example of this. It's thriving and flourishing. There's no sign of its waning. But to say it's of God because God's blessed it is a whole different thing. It's, there's no blessing of God on that or within that industry that exploits, takes advantage of, and ruins other people and objectifies them. But the point that I'd make is that Gamaliel makes this advice, but it was, it was led to the point where the apostles and leaders of the early church were basically given more freedom, more room to act and operate within. So I would look at that and say, this is God's providence guiding and in this case, using a man that's not seeking to be used by God. This is fascinating to me, how God is able to use people that are open and present and wanting to be used by God. God's able to work in ways in which he completely overrides human agency. And thirdly, there are ways in which God simply uses um, non-Christians, people that are not interested in God, people that don't care about God. And the point of the matter is, the big E on the I chart is this, God's providentially working. God's moving. And the way that Luke writes the story here is he writes is in this narrative way that's very reflective of many of the ancient Old Testament stories that are these profound depictions of God's involvement in broken, messed up, ruined humanity. 
For example, one of the cases that probably some of you might be familiar with is a guy by the name of Joseph. He's sold into slavery. If you're not familiar with it, he's sold into slavery. He becomes sort of a higher up within Egypt's, uh, I don't know what you call it, his monarchy or whatever the case is. He becomes a main leader there. And through all these circumstances, even though he's been betrayed by his family, even though he's been sold off into slavery, somehow God was behind the scenes moving in the most profound ways, taking this radically profound tragedy and using it as the means of salvation, the means of help, the means of assistance for the Jewish people. Uh, The book of Esther is written like that, and there's all sorts of Old Testament stories that are like that. So Luke kind of writes in that same type of narrative to describe that same God, Yahweh, is still working and moving in the same profoundly providential ways. The point is, is that God was moving in these providential ways, displayed in these three different ways at least. Second question is, how did the early church think about God's providence? So the big question is, how do they process this? How do they make sense of it? Okay, if God is moving, if God is working, how do they make sense of all of this crazy stuff that was happening to them? And I think we get a little bit of a clue in the passage as to how they actually process and thought through this. On the one hand, we're going to talk a little bit about briefly about how they thought. On the other hand, we're going to talk about a little bit how they acted. So two big words you can think about. One is their orthodoxy, which is right uh, thought, right ideas, right concepts. We call that orthodoxy. And then the other word is orthopraxy, the right practice. How do they practice? How do they live, if you would, in light of what they knew? So first of all, let's take a look at what did the early church think about or know about God's providence? Acts chapter 5 Verse 30, like I said, gives us this little clue. It says in verse 30, it says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on the tree. And then he says, God exalted him uh, to the right hand as leader and savior, and we are witnesses to these things. So in short, what basically Peter's describing here, it's really profound, if you unpack it and just meditate and think about it, what he's basically saying is that, look, there was a great tragedy, great evil that has happened Several months ago, right? Because by this time, the early church was going as several months after Jesus died. What he's basically saying is a great tragedy happened, and all of you guys are to blame, right? You killed Jesus. And I don't want to unpack, like, who is actually to blame for Jesus' death and so on and so forth. But the point that Peter, I think, is making is that you guys are to blame for Jesus' death. You killed him. But the story doesn't stop there. God raised him. In other words... God overrode your act of rebellion and wickedness and evil. God overrode it. God providentially overrode it. And what they're all basically looking at, and this is where I think it gets really important because the next passage basically describes where they saw themselves and in light to God. They said in verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. These two words, leader and savior, are really important. The word leader is the Greek word archagon. Um, it appears throughout uh, a couple other passages in the book of Hebrews. The word archagon literally means this, uh, the originator, an author, or founder. So if a person was the initiator of a brand new foundation, the beginning of a brand new movement, that person would have been described as the archagon. Or if a person is, is a traveler and is breaking brand new territories, going where no man has ever dared gone before, that person would be an archagon. And what they're saying is that that's who Jesus is. He's gone. He is taking us places that nobody's ever gone before. 
It's, it's him. And then he goes on to describe, he's not just our archagon, but he's also our savior, meaning he is rescued. He is our tangible rescuer. He has rescued us from a place of brokenness and destruction, and he's rescued us into a whole new life in which it's not just simply suffering followed by death. It's suffering followed by death followed by resurrection. How do we know that? Because that's exactly what happened to him. And what Peter's basically saying, this is the story that God has brought us into. Is making sense to you guys? The early church saw themselves as not just simply being people on the outside, trying to make sense of who this great big God is. Does he love me? Does he care about me? How does he care about my life? Where's my food going to come from? They were looking at this and saying, well, of course God loves us. Of course he cares for us. Because if he has washed us and cleansed us and forgiven us our great trespasses and our sins and has taken even the wickedness and the evil that has been done at our own hands and somehow we have all been contributors to his death and yet God overrode death by resurrection and that's the story we find ourselves in, then what they all recognize, that if that's the case, no matter how profoundly broken or challenging or difficult circumstances I may find myself thrown into or tossed into or disoriented as a result of, somehow God will make good even out of that. In other words, the tapestry, the back of the tapestry is not the most accurate way to determine whether or not and whatever God is doing with my life. Somehow we need to trust that the backside does not define what the overall picture is going to look like. So you guys follow? So where do we get the foresight, the ability to know that somehow beauty is going to be made out of this crazy, disconnected, disjointed, frayed, mismatch of colors from the backside of the tapestry? It's because we look at Christ, who though he was killed, God raised him. You fall out? And he's saying, that's the story we find ourselves. So... What does that mean? What does that look like in our lives then? How does it impact and affect these people? And this is, raises the question of how did the early church act in light of God's providence? We see really three things. One, we see that they were able to meet the needs of these certain people. In other words, with people that had great, massive needs, brokenness, dysfunctionalities, they weren't put off by them. They didn't have to run from them. They didn't have to turn their back on them. They didn't have to somehow create like space for them to go so that we can keep them over there and us over here, they recognize that if God is able to reach down and rescue dysfunctional, broken people like us, then there's currency for me to be able to love and reach out and extend kindness to those people that are dysfunctional, broken, and unlovable like them. And God will help me. God will give me everything I need to do that because that same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is literally pulsating through my veins now as I seek to live out and follow and understand who God is today. That means that there is the ability. Even though I may look at my life from time to time and say I don't have the ability, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the training, I don't have anything that's needed to somehow help people with great amounts of baggage, but what I do have is the God that's alive, the God that takes brokenness and dysfunctionality and turns it into beauty. All we really need to do is just simply be present. That's it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what the percentage is, but I, I think I've said first service is like, 
I, th- I think most ministry is just 95% just being present, showing up, and having a heart that says, God, here I am, use me. Look, the fact of the matter is, is a lot of times I think people get this misunderstanding, like, oh, Pastor Brian, he's been doing this for a long time, he's in this rhythm, he's in this groove, I'm sure every single time he comes to church, he's like super excited to be here, he's excited to hang out with people, but look, the fact of the matter is, here's my dark, dirty secret, is that that's not always true. I mean, I love doing what I do, and don't get me, don't get me wrong, I love preaching, I love teaching, I love hanging out with people, I love uh, engaging and ministering with people, but I also love my time of, of disconnect from people. Like, I, that, that's how I recharge my batteries, is just being alone, thinking, going for a nice long walk, and, 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 and I, you know, again, further dark secrets and confessions is that I, I can be easily annoyed. So uh, the fact is that sometimes if I allow my, what my heart's feeling in that moment to just simply override the needs of people, then, then I won't be of any use. But if I come with a heart that simply says, God, I don't really want to be around people right now. I'm not really feeling super sociable. I'm not really feeling super talkative. But I know that you will give grace. I'm just going to go and show up and trust you. So the fact is that there are occasions, not very often, but especially on Sunday mornings, there are occasions that sometimes I, you know, I, I'm like, I, I mean, I'll just put it this way. God gives me a lot of grace on Sunday mornings. So most of the time it doesn't happen on Sunday mornings. It might happen on other occasions, but not always, always Sunday mornings. God gives me grace. But there are occasions where I'm like, I'm not looking forward to going in to hang out with people. But I realize that's where God wants me to be. And I realize that by faith, I'm going to just trust God to lead me in that place and hang out with people. And God somehow will give me grace to just be able to be a blessing. And again, that's, it's, that's what the early church did. It's just like we, we trust that somehow God wants to be present. God will somehow give us grace and currency to help those that are in need. Uh, secondly, we see that they were able to boldly obey God in the face of opposition. Boldly able to obey God in the face of opposition. So the fact of the matter is, is that in this culture, just as in the early culture, for the early Christians to obey God meant they had to live in disobedience, if you would, uh, to the wider voice of culture at large. Um, on the one hand, they were seeking to live in harmony and obedience to God, but at the same time, in defiance to the culture at large. And this is really important to understand that, look, if you're trying to be faithful to God and understand and live for God in today's culture, the fact of the matter is, is that culture at large will rarely line up with all of the ideals and concepts and heart of God. It just rarely will. I mean, there's things in which the culture at large does line up with God. For example, God says, don't, don't murder. I mean, we even have laws based upon that, like don't murder. That's good for society. Yeah, but it's also reflective of, of God, and it's part of a reason. I mean, it might not capture the actual heart of why it says don't murder. God would say don't murder because those are people made in my image, so don't, don't kill people made in my image. And, but the point of the matter is there are some laws of our land that are actually congruent with the heart of God. But the point of the matter is, is that for the early church, they recognize for us to be obedient to God means that we've got to live in defiance to the culture at large, and they were willing to pay the price for it. So, same is going to be true for us. You know, it doesn't mean we go out and be jerks, it doesn't mean we go out and be rude and uh, combative, it just means that we humbly walk with God into a world that oftentimes will not share the same ideals as God. So, to be obedient to God will oftentimes mean defiance to culture at large, but same can be said is that if we simply live according to uh, submission to 
the culture at large, we will then, to some degree, be in defiance to God. So you have to decide, think, what end of the stick would be better for me to engage with and live on? Defiance to world and culture at large, obedience to God, obedience to culture at large, defiance to God. So this is what we see there in the church. Like, we want to live in radical commitment and obedience to God. Finally, we see that they rejoice even in the face of suffering. In the last few verses of chapter 5, we see this really profound passage. It says this. I'll just read it in verse 41. It says, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Think of it this way. They were just whipped and beat and tortured. And they're walking out rejoicing. What does that look like? It doesn't really say. It doesn't give description. But my my guess, maybe they're singing. I don't know. Laughing. Uh, I, I I don't know what would be appropriate and how it would be to define what rejoicing meant for them in that context. But whatever it says, the narrator of the story just simply says they were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for God. So that means that somehow in the midst of suffering, there is a hope of rejoicing. It's possible. Do you realize how shocking all these things are? But the reality is this is what the gospel promises us. Somehow. How? Because of where we find ourselves within the story. The early church is a community of people that says our lives have been taken captive or rescued or saved by God, which means we were saved from the alternate stories that we were devoted to and and being rescued from those things. We have been rescued to life, given life. We have a leader, uh, an archagon who is guiding us, who's gone before us, and whatever happened to him will also happen to us. So even though suffering and death happened to Jesus, even though suffering and death may happen to us, what happened to Jesus in terms of that him living again will also happen to us. And they're like, that's where we find our, our lives. This is why Paul, the apostle, would later go on. Uh, I don't know if it was based upon that verse that we read or just uh, a collection of ideas that would originate or come out of the story of Jesus that Paul would later say in Romans chapter 8, passage that's really familiar to a lot of people, is that, is that um, God will make all things work together for good, and he goes on to say, to those that are in Christ Jesus... And that's Paul's way of basically saying that, look, where do you find yourself? What story are you living in? Because if you are in the story of the Messiah, if, you have, if your life has been taken over by this story, then yes, you will have suffering. You, there's no way, there's no foolproof way to guarantee yourself from not having suffering in this life. You can't outflank death. A lot of people do, try. But you never can. But the point of the matter is, Suffering and death are, are, are pretty much guarantees in this life. But for those that find themselves brought into the story of Christ also have this hope of life after death, resurrection. And this is the beautiful reality that the gospel offers. I'm going to finish with this thought because there's a, some of you guys are familiar with the book, Robinson Crusoe. It's a great little passage I want to read to you. If you're not familiar with it, it's a story. I think most of us are kind of somewhat familiar. Like, think of it as like the Swiss Family Robinson like survival story. It is totally not that, all right? It's a story of a guy who's running from God and running from his dad and running from his, his life. And in his quest to run from his family, his God, his, and all these other things, he gets shipwrecked. And his life literally takes it's just this, this wrestling of, God, where are you? God, why do you hate me? God, why have you crushed me? 
And through all sorts of great circumstances and suffering, he comes to realize that actually God is not out to crush him. God is actually out to rescue him and save him. And this is what he goes on to say. Just listen to this passage. Daniel Defoe was actually a Puritan. Uh, He was a, a strong believer in the providence of God. And listen to what he wrote. He said this, so little do we see before us in the world and so much reason have we to depend cheerfully upon the great maker of this world that he does not leave his creatures so absolutely destitute but that in the most, that in the worst circumstances they have always something to be thankful for and sometimes are nearer deliverance than they can even imagine. Nay, not that word nay, but just this summary great passage. He says, nay are even brought to their deliverance by the means by which they seem to be brought to their destruction. Whoa. Like, his point is like, look, I was running from God. It's kind of the idea. I was running from God. I was running, and I ended up on this abstract island of desolation, yet it was that island of desolation that becomes my means of salvation. How can you say that? Because he knew Jesus the story of Jesus was one that was shipwrecked on the desolate cross of destruction, but the cross wasn't the end. The resurrection was. And he recognizes that that's the story I now belong to. That's the story I found myself in. So, the question you got to wrestle with is what story do you find yourself in? Like, what defines your life? What, what do you... What do you path of life are you on and where is it taking you? Is it one that promises life after death and suffering and hardship? Is it one that somehow God promises to be creating this absolutely beautiful work of art but even though you can't make sense of it all the time right now because all you should be looking at is the backside of this tapestry and it doesn't make any sense but somehow you know that on the other side of that is absolute beauty because that's exactly the story of Jesus Absolute tragedy transformed by beauty. That's a story God invites us to come into. So we're going to respond. So we're going to come on, comes on up. I, I want to I read one other final um, song. Some of you guys might be familiar with it. It's a great song by, it's a, it was actually originally a poem written by a guy named William Cooper. Um, it's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Just, just let's do it if you've already heard it. Hear it again. If you've never heard it, just maybe, I don't know, if you want to close your eyes, meditate, think about it, because it's really, really powerful. Just listen to what he says. William Cooper's actually a really interesting guy. He's, um, he, was, he struggled with depression, really, most of his life, and actually in three accounts attempted suicide, but failed every time. And I always bother him, because he's like, I'm no good at anything. I can't even kill myself. Like, I'm that bad. So messed up, so jacked up. I can't even kill myself. I'm that bad. He was a man that greatly questioned his faith in, in God, greatly questioned his worth before God, and, and listened to the words that he wrote. He was a poet, he was a really well known poet, and this is the words that he wrote to his song. He wrote this God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. Think about that. The clouds we oftentimes find ourselves in the midst of and we're like criticizing God. God, why would you allow me to go through these gnarly, gnarly clouds? 
What he says is it's like that tapestry. Beyond those clouds, you can't see it right now because the clouds are there. But on the other side of those clouds, God has this like big smile on his face. And it's not a smile of glee and taking delight in your suffering. It's a smile. It's like if you could only see what I have in store for you on the other side of this thing. But you can't because all you're looking at is the back side of the tapestry. And he finishes with these words. He says, his purposes, or judge not the Lord in feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind, unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. Imagine just like crossing your arms and like, God, how dare you do all this stuff? Scan his work in vain. He says, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. That is a poem that describes in absolute beautiful artistry the providential hand of God. So there we are. What do we, what do we follow? What do we trust? This, the hand of this God that makes things good through preeminently Jesus, suffering, death, and resurrection, or scan this universe to try to figure out what story to try to sink our lives with and make sense of. The invitation of the gospel is to come to the table and to eat the bread and to drink the cup and be reminded of the cost that God paid to redeem to wash, to cleanse, to forgive, to invite us to trust him. So extend that invitation to you. Why don't we all stand? Let's sing. We have uh, some people off to the cross. I'd love to pray with you. We have some communion stations in the front and the back to partake the bread and the cup. There's some rugs in the front. If you just want to get on your face for God, you're welcome to do that. But let's, let's respond. Let's worship God.